This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Hello, my name is Stephanie Creary, and I'm an assistant professor of management at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, and I'm delighted to welcome you to today's episode of the Knowledge at Wharton Leading Diversity at Work podcast series, which is focused on inclusive storytelling in organizations. Joining me today are two very special guests. First, we have Julianne Cromit, who is founder and CEO of Collective Moxie, a consulting company that works with corporate and nonprofit organizations to change culture through inclusive storytelling practices. She has worked in diversity, equity, and inclusion-related roles for over 13 years, much of this time in media and tech industries. Previously, she was vice president of multicultural audience engagement at the Walt Disney Studios, spearheading efforts to diversify talent in front of and behind the camera, connect creative projects more closely to the communities they touch, and build a more inclusive culture within the studios. Before Disney, she was Google's entertainment industry educator-in-chief, leading their efforts to shift and diversify on-screen perceptions of computer science through storytelling. This is a position she created. And she was also, uh, at that time, leading Google's DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion efforts in Latin America. Julie Ann has also served as an adjunct assistant professor for Columbia University's Master's in Fine Arts Film program and co-created a course on inclusive storytelling. Welcome, Julianne. We also have joining us today, Professor Melissa Thomas-Hunt, who is the John Forbes Distinguished Professor of Business Administration at the Darden School of Business at University of Virginia and also at University of Virginia. She's, she holds the title of Professor of Public Policy at the Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy. She is the former head of global diversity and belonging at Airbnb, where she led the strategy and execution of their global internal diversity, inclusion, equity, and belonging programs. And she currently still retains an external senior advisor role focused on advancing connection and belonging research. Prior to Airbnb, Melissa served as Vice Provost for Inclusive Excellence and Professor of Management in the Owens School of Management at Vanderbilt University. Uh, she was responsible for advancing equity, diversity, and inclusion across Vanderbilt's community of staff, students, and faculty. Prior to that, she was Global Chief Diversity Officer and a professor at Darden. So this is actually her second stint at Darden. But prior to that, she also held faculty appointments at Cornell University Samuel Curtis Johnson's Graduate School of Management, where she was a member of the faculty for nine, nine years. And she has also taught at Northwestern's Kellogg School, Washington University's Olin School of Business, and Stanford University's Graduate School of Business. So without uh, further ado, I'd like to welcome our dynamic duo. Uh, Julianne and Melissa to our podcast episode today focused on inclusive storytelling in organizations. I'm so honored to have you both here with us for what I imagine will be a really interesting uh, and delightful conversation. Uh, but first, um, Melissa and uh, Julianne actually know each other. And, and, I, and I found this out because I recently met uh, Julianne. So let me first say how I met Melissa, and then I'll say how I met Julianne, and I'm going to let you them tell us all how they know each other. Um, so I, I, I first came in contact with Melissa and her work when I was a PhD student. I'm not going to say how many years ago, uh, for both my sake and Melissa's sake. Um, and I was interested in diversity research at that time. Uh, she's a friend of many of my mentors. So I believe they all went to graduate school uh, at the same time and, um, and you know, were connected that way. Um, and so I was very familiar with uh, Melissa's work on diversity teams and negotiations. Uh, Julianne, I met last fall, actually. Uh, one of my colleagues um, knows her, and they met randomly at a conference. Having met Julianne, I can understand she's the person who actually meets people at conferences that she doesn't know, so I wasn't that surprised once we got to know each other. Um, and Julianne had heard about Wharton's new uh, diversity, equity, inclusion majors and concentrations, um, and she'd reached out to my colleague uh, to just find out more information. He connected the two of us, and, and Julianne and I, we hit it off right away, 
and she was telling about this interesting work that she's been doing on inclusive storytelling. And I thought that that would make for a great podcast episode. Um, and then she, we were talking about, well, who could we get to join us? And she goes, do you know Melissa Thomas Hunt? And I was like, of course I know Melissa Thomas Hunt. And so from there, I'm going to let Julianne and Melissa tell you how they know each other. Because I think it's a, I think they're doing some cool stuff together, but I think it would be great to have more context uh, also to help us, um, you know, I think enrich our conversation today as well. So ladies, how do you know each other? So Julianne, should I start and then you can, you can jump into it? That's probably the best way for this one. Um, and Stephanie, I just want to say thank you so much for creating this opportunity. It's absolutely wonderful. And I think the the length of, of um, when you were introducing me is indicative of my age. I think I'm a little bit ahead of all your mentors. And so, um, but, but appreciate that nonetheless. Um, so here's the thing. I'm going to use inclusive language. And so I'm going to say, for a really long time, since 2016, I have been a fan person of Julianne's, and I'll tell you how we met, and I know exactly where we met, and it was May of 2016, um, and I was actually attending the Benton Film Festival in Bentonville, Arkansas, and I was there with my daughter, who was finishing her first year um, of college, and she had an interest in, interest in entertainment and media and diversity and inclusion, and I also, you know, was interested. I had actually heard Gina Davis, who's one of the founders of this festival, speak at the Makers Conference a few months before. And I was captivated by the fact that she said that you could create on screen through media a world before it actually exists. Like you could have representation at the highest levels before the world actually exists in that way. And that was captivating. So we had gone to Benville Film Festival, attended a lot of panels, and Julianne was on one of the panels. And it was by far our, our favorite panel and our favorite panelist. And Benville Film Festival um, was early on the cusp of really trying to be inclusive throughout media, both in content, in who was behind the screen, you know, filming things, and then also who was in front of the screen. And so Julianne was, was speaking so passionately and so warmly. Um, and we realized that she and my daughter share, you know, uh, an undergraduate institution and a concentration, which for most of us is called a major. Mm -hmm. And um, and so afterward, we went up and we introduced ourselves. And you would have thought that, um, you know, a panelist, they were swamped. Julianne was so kind. And even when my daughter followed up by email, she responded. And so in my mind, meeting her is inextricably linked to a wonderful education process where we started thinking more deliberately about inclusive storytelling, but, um, and also the experience that I had doing that with, with my daughter. And fast forward, as I was leaving Airbnb, we were put back in touch. And so um, every opportunity I have to be with Julianne, I learn something, it's fun, it's creative, um, we laugh. And so that's my side. Julianne, you could, you could jump in. Oh my gosh, so th this is, by the way, such a joy. Stephanie, thank you for bringing us together again for this conversation. Um, and uh, Melissa, or MTH, as uh, a lot of us call you. <laughs> um, you know, it, it it was so funny because when we got reconnected the second time, so um, MTH was on her way out of, of Airbnb um, and actually got, uh, we got connected um, because I had been reached out to by a recruiting firm about the role. Uh, and so it brought, which is what a wonderfully small world. So they're like, well, you should speak to Melissa Thomas, huh? <laughs> and so we get on the phone and it was as if almost no time had passed. I think we ended up talking for two hours. And even though the role wasn't necessarily a match for me, I think what came out of it was a rekindling of our friendship in the most amazing of ways. And um, and so I have to say, first of all, I have to say thank you to Airbnb for reuniting us. Uh, and, secondly, <laughs> um, and, um, and also when you reminded me, MTH, of that original um, uh, intersection at the Bentonville Bus Web, I flashed to the moment. I could see it in my mind, our conversation, because <laughs> we were up on that stage and we came down. Um, and I remember that it had been one of those panels that also to this day sticks out in my mind because of also my fellow panelists. And so I, I, I remember the minute you said it, I saw your daughter's face like in my head and I went, Okay, so now we're locked for life. This is what it's going to be. So um, to be here together, as you were saying, talking about sort of the very subject and the very like philosophical point of view that sort of brought us together um, just feels um, in a way like fate, uh, like, you know, just, you know, full circle. 
Excellent. Well, I'm excited to have the two of you here. Um, this is, you know, fun for me, and I'm sure fun for our listeners as well to know that you all have a, a, a history and a personal connection around this topic. But I think what we should do is, is tell them what inclusive storytelling means. So let me just, just give a little bit of context. And then Julianne, I'm going to ask for you to help us understand what, the, what this actually means. So, you know, as I, when I you know, shared your bio, you've had this wonderfully illustrious career working in, in several well-known media and tech companies on the creative side. Um, and now you're consulting to you know, both small and large firms who are interested in growing their diversity work. Um, and, I, and in my conversations with you, I've gotten the sense that you've developed some rather in, original insights and a rather original approach to um, demystifying and making concrete this idea of inclusive storytelling in creative work and in organizations more broadly. So can you help us to understand what is inclusive storytelling and why is this important? Absolutely. So to me, inclusive storytelling is at heart is the concept that when you're looking at narrative, when you're looking at telling stories in any way, shape or form, you have to consider for a whole lot of factors. Um, and that's sort of the act of inclusion, right? So the idea that, you know, sort of who's telling the story, what perspective is it coming from? Um, who is on the team that's putting that story together, whether it be in written form, a podcast, visually, right? Meaning maybe a piece of art, maybe a movie uh, or a television series. Um, how are you thinking about your audience? Who's receiving this story? Um, you know, where are they sitting? You know, what is their lived experience as this story is coming to them? And um, and I, I always think the storytelling is a two-way street. We've been doing it as long as we've been humans, right? Around often a campfire, right? Or the idea of gathering. And so um, to me, storytelling is always a two-way conversation. So you have to be thinking about your audience and where they're positioned as, as they're receiving the story. And then also it's the act of thinking about the history of storytelling as part of that context. You know, when you look at modern filmmaking um, and television, which you consider about the last hundred plus years, give or take, um, a lot of stereotypes and singular narratives is a great way to put it around different peoples and individuals have been, uh, you know, propagated through stories over and over again which actually determine the way we think about ourselves and the ways we think about other people. And I think the profundity of the, con of the conversation around inclusive storytelling is the consideration of all the elements around the story that you're telling, but also the consideration of like past as prologue, the idea that actually what we have to reference in our minds as storytellers is often in and of itself biased, may be singular, and that there is a need to unpack that. The, the word you would use in theater is dramaturgy, dramaturgically, right? You would need to unpack it. Um, more so, it just means you need to get underneath, right? And understand what is functioning in this narrative that is either saying the same thing that's always been said about a particular group of people, or does it have the opportunity to say something different? more nuanced, more complete, more 360. And I think the argument that any creative person would tell you is the more specific a story can be, the more well thought out and well-rounded and 360. And that doesn't mean that somebody is perfect as your protagonist. It doesn't mean that um, it is has to be a happy or uplifting story. It's the notion that it is complete in thought that you can explain all the choices you've made those are the kinds of stories that actually resonate the most deeply with all of us as human beings, because they actually connect to something really fundamental in each of us is that we are complex. We are many different intersections of identities. And so when we see that reflected back to us in an inclusive storytelling modality, it awakens something in us as audience members. And that's where the connection is made. And so for me, I always think about this also as a deep creative endeavor, because why wouldn't we want to tell stories that are deeper, more relatable, more connected? And then at the same time, guess what happens? That makes them universal. And that for me is the beauty of this exercise is that actually in the specific and the intentionality is where we get to the universal. Um, and so that for me is, is sort of inclusive storytelling in a nutshell. 
So I love so much about this idea. And one of the things I love, it sort of speaks to my own, I think, sensibility as, you know, a, a professor and as a social scientist is I, I love the positive orientation. It's about what should we be doing? Um, but I think in order to understand why inclusive storytelling is important, we have to acknowledge the ways in which storytelling, especially in the, you know, quote unquote mainstream has been exclusive, right? And there was a previous episode of the podcast where we were talking about uh, microaggressions and why people who are from historically marginalized group might respond um, very negatively to something that might seem like a small slight, but has a big impact. And so the conversation that we were having was because what is often triggered with some of the things that people might say is this broader uh, sense of exclusion that people have felt. And one of the examples that was used in that episode was uh, this idea that if you turn on the television, you know, whose culture, whose experiences are represented? And what happens is, or if originally when lots of underrepresented groups stories were represented for the first time, let's say, for example, Black Americans, it was done in a very negative, stereotypical way. Um, and so this idea of we think it's inclusive storytelling, but it's really like a microaggression or just harmful. Um, how do we do this in a way that makes more sense? And so this idea of inclusive storytelling, I think, is also met with this notion of we've not always either included groups um, lock, stock, and barrel, or when we've tried to include them, we've magnified harmful stereotypes that uh, denigrate them and further cause, cause harm. Um, so love this idea. Melissa, certainly you've been in so many sectors of our world uh, talking about diversity, equity, inclusion. You've had clearly a distinguished career as, as an academic and a social scientist. You've been uh, an academic leader uh, in administration at, at, at a couple of universities. You've been a corporate leader as well. Um, and so before I ask you about how you see inclusive storytelling playing a role in those spheres as well, I do want to ask a question that I'm sure other people are wondering is you leave academia, you take a job at Airbnb, like what was the, the sense making for you around that? And then now coming back to academia, but staying connected to Airbnb. So can you tell us a little bit more about that aspect of your career and, and what you gained from, from having those experiences? Sure. Absolutely. Um, so, so I'll start with the fact that um, as an undergraduate, my major was in chemical engineering. Um, and it's the hardest thing that I ever did. And I did a lot of group work and I felt as though um, I, I wasn't expert, that I wasn't particularly competent when in fact, I now know looking back, I had unique contributions to make, but that weren't necessarily valued. And so I, I say that because I think that's the kernel of what I ultimately came to, to study. I went and I worked for IBM. I was a marketing rep. I observed negotiations and group dynamics. I decided I wanted to study it. Um, and part of what, when I became an assistant professor, what I was interested in was that return to when I was that chemical engineering student, understanding, you know, whose voices get heard, whose voices get marginalized, and particularly when they actually have expert knowledge. Um, you know, what is the status hierarchy that emerges in even, you know, in a sensibly flat or a hierarchy-free group? Um, and that catapulted me into the world of studying um, gender dynamics and the effect of race and ethnicity in the status hierarchy, and how can you leverage expertise. Um, and so um, that's the realm in which I was playing, which all of a sudden I looked up and I was um, then called a diversity scholar. We would now um, say diversity and inclusion, diversity and belonging. Um, we, we continued to, um, to refine um, how we make that categorization. But that allowed me so I wanted to do the research to help elucidate some of the challenges, but I actually wanted to fix some of it. And my fixing of it was in stepping into administrative roles. So first at Darden in the business school and then at Vanderbilt um, at a university level, and then quite unexpectedly um, getting reached out to and sort of this um, iconic way of being on LinkedIn um, through a weak tie, someone that I knew, but not particularly well, who said, you know, I know you're an academic, um, but we're looking for someone to lead global diversity and belonging at Airbnb, and will you talk to us? And I thought, well, I'm a student of organizations. Why would I not talk to an organization? Because I want to learn more. I had been a guest. And so I started 
the very intense process of, um, of speaking with a number of the executives and learning more about it. Um, and then I, I, and one of the things that was compelling was the notion that the company, Airbnb, had a, had a mission of creating a world where anybody could, could belong anywhere. And the work that I had been doing to date was focused on belonging and in particular um, eroding belonging gaps across different demographic subgroups, you know, in, in academic environments, whether it's within student populations, faculty populations, staff populations. And here there was this company that's, that had it front and center, but they didn't know how to do it. And they had spent a lot of time focusing on the platform because there had been challenges on the platform um, and allegations of discrimination um, against guests and in particular black guests, but they had they had assumed that if you have a mission of belonging, everyone at the company is having the same experience of belonging. And despite anecdotes, um, they hadn't really put the resources behind that. And so I thought I could come in and I could help them. And so um, came in. We did an audit of what was going well, and there was a lot that was going well. But what were some of the the challenges and opportunities? Um, presented, you know, talked to people around the globe. Um, uh, spent time in person, this is before the pandemic, um, and also in town halls, and presented to my colleagues on the executive team um, a distillation of, you know, the state of affairs with regard to diversity and belonging. And they raised their hands and they said, you haven't asked us to make personal commitments. Um, and so I did, I said, I'll be back. Um, and we left 2019 with the CEO saying that advancing diversity and belonging had been one of the three most transformational efforts of the year, which shocked me um, and made me really proud in my team. And then we rolled into 2020 and we hit a pandemic. Yeah. Like, you know, lots around that. There was lots of really good work that was done. One of the things that I realized was that, um, Having managers who are inclusive leaders was something that took a lot of building and that I knew a place where we spent time building managers. And I wanted to go back to the top of the funnel to help participate in that process and to go back to school public policy, to uh, an MBA program and do that. So that's the condensed version. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So I heard so many overlaps with this idea of uh, inclusion, definitely an inclusive storytelling. And I want to sort of uh, come back to you to let's talk about, you know, Julian set us up nicely um, to talk about inclusive storytelling as it makes sense in a creative project. So whether it's, we'll talk about movies in a minute, but I've also alluded to TV shows, but I want to think about inclusive storytelling uh, internally, like within an organization for the people who work there, but also in the organizations in which you and I work right now, right? Academic institutions for students. How do you or have you been thinking about the power of inclusive storytelling um, in this type of work, in, in you know, internal organization, internal organizational work that's not related to the product you're creating or the service that you're creating, um, but also for our student population and, and how they experience um, our environment? So it's a big, it's a big question. Um, I'll start in the educational arena and then move to the, to the private sector. Um, in the educational arena, you have um, individuals who hail from around the world who come to, many of whom come to new environments and then don't see themselves represented. They don't see themselves represented um, sometimes in the staff um, or in the faculty. Um, they exist in small numbers amongst their peers. Um, and that makes them question whether um, not only should they be there, but whether they truly are valued. And if you question whether you're valued, it means that when you have an idea, a thought that seems different than what's already been expressed, you're hesitant to share that, um, that idea. Um, at Darn We Do case method. And so the very premise of the pedagogy is depending upon people sharing their knowledge. And if you think that what you think is wrong and that won't be respected, you're not gonna share that. So everyone's learning gets to be um, impeded. And so the greater the representation you have, the more it signals to people that yes, you're supposed to be here. You're part of the fabric, you're part of the tapestry. Um, and that our, the very thing that we're doing um, is, is dependent upon your participation. Um, and we want to hear those unique ideas. And so um, in academic environments, that's in many different ways. I've I've worked to try and diversify who do we see, who's present, and what's the, the experience that those individuals are having. And it's really, really hard work. Um, in the corporate area, and I'll talk about Airbnb, Airbnb um, 
it's similarly important. It's important for the base of employees. Um, I was supposed to be focused internally. I poked my nose everywhere. Um, mm-hmm. And so um, I, I spent a lot of time also talking about platform issues. And one of the things, so Airbnb has guests and hosts. And um, we hear a lot about guests, probably because most of us, it resonates. Um, that's the most accessible experience for us. The reality is the true partners are hosts. Without hosts, there is no Airbnb. Um, And as you try and grow a company, you've got to diversify your base of hosts. You've got to create more places and opportunities for for guests to go. Um, And the, the challenge is that hosts, um, if if they've never hosted, if they don't know anyone who's hosted, they don't necessarily think it's for them. And so how do you create, how do you paint a picture through advertising, through um, through the platform, through what they call the PDPs when you interact with it, you know, on your, on your, the app, app with on your phone, how do you see people um, who reflect you such that you believe you too can be a person? It's, it's fundamental to the business pro- proposition. And the last thing I'll say on this is that, um, Last Black History Month in February of 2022, the Black Employee Resource Group decided that they wanted to sort of take the reins and that they wanted to share um, with the company, but also with the world um, and celebrate Black travel. And so they created their own video um, and uh, on their own because they wanted to show um, Black people from the diaspora traveling, and and even broader than traveling, they wanted to underscore the the historical context of Black people around the world um, hosting and 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 delivering hospitality. And so, um, and seeing that, I mean, both the employees at the company, it resonated. There was a deep pride, but I think it you know it went beyond the company walls, um, so that you know, people around the world, potential hosts, potential guests could see, oh, there's actually a place. Like they see me, they they understand my experience. So it's really powerful. Yeah, I, I was thinking a couple of things came up for me as you were sharing. One is in the academic sector, how important it is that we as, as faculty um, think about and thoughtfully about our, our materials that we use in our classes. And I think in, in Darden's case, um, in case environments, case teaching environment, but also I think, you know, we're not a, a case method school at the Wharton School, but we use a lot of cases in our courses is like, what is what are the demographic characteristics of the the, the protagonists of the cases that you're using and, and really trying hard to ensure that you're uh, having leaders represented in your case protagonists who represent at minimally the body of students in your class or at your institution, I think is really important. And I know part of that is about on the production side is, is who are we? It's not always like the selection issue. Like we're only picking um, people who look like us, right? And we're not picking a diverse group of protagonists. Sometimes it's, we're actually not writing cases about a variety of leaders and their experiences. So, so on the production side, but also on the selection side, being more thoughtful about the diversity of, of people represented in the cases that are being shared. And then um, I think about this idea of who works here, whether in a corporate organization um, or in an academic institution, whose stories we're telling. I have a, a report that we released, public-facing report that's part of a larger academic study that uh, co-authored with colleagues Uh, focused on uh, evidence-based diversity, equity, inclusion practices, and how those can help to improve workplace culture. And one of the seven practices we talk about is called physical visibility. I'm going to start talking about inclusive storytelling um, as I try to help people understand what that is, because I think it's very similar. It's this idea that people want to see, if it's a physical environment, pictures up on the wall of people who look like the people who work here and are in my community. If I'm scrolling through the company's intranet site, I want to see my colleagues, not just a select group of non-diverse leaders. And so I think those are the things that struck me as being really interesting and important. I'm gonna turn back to you, Julianne, because I, I, I think it's fascinating when we get to the product side, how this actually works logistically. And, I, and I lear- I've learned from you way more about uh, inclusive storytelling practices in media than I ever thought that I would have known. And, and I've enjoyed many of the creative products that you've worked on, including Encanto. I mean, who doesn't love Encanto? So you worked on Encanto and a number of other popular 
films. I saw Black Panther. I saw all of these very exciting things that I, you know, sat in the audiences was, was so excited to see something different from my perspective represented up on the big screen. Anyhow, many of the things that you've worked on um, center the experiences of, of people of color across various different ethnic and racial groups. And so let's center on Encanto uh, for, for a little bit. I want to understand um, how how this dynamic played out. There was a team working on Encanto and you worked with them. You all worked together to, to think about inclusive storytelling in the process of creating the film. So can you talk a little bit about that process and then help us understand like what, what did, I mean, I know what was gained. I had a wonderful experience as an audience member, but beyond my personal experience, what do you think was gained from this inclusive storytelling practice? Absolutely. Um, and I'm so glad we're talking about Encanto. It's a, it sits at a very special place in my heart. Um, as a Latina, I'm not Colombiana, I'm Puerto Rican and Cuban, but I um, I feel so strongly about uh, this piece for so many reasons, Stephanie, that you just highlighted. I just want to say, by the way, from MTH's comments, um, something that really struck me when you were talking about storytelling within organizations, um, this idea of the internalization of, of the notion that somehow my opinion is not valid or that um, I don't know if I can speak on this topic or um, that I'm not sort of the lead, if you will, I think is actually directly connected back to the places in which people of uh, historically marginalized and represented backgrounds have sat in narratives because we are often the sidekick we are often the second character, right? Not the protagonist or the lead. And when you were talking about that internalization within culture, I just wanted to point out that really flagged for me as something you can see in the patterning of the world on screen, directly reflecting into the world off screen and the concept of self-value worth and where you literally see yourself in the narrative of the characters around you in a workspace. And so I just want to take a pause because I just... That yeah. really struck me like deeply as you were talking um, and and how much being the lead of the story actually matters when you think about right agency and when you think about this internalization of the value of your worth and of your thoughts and of your journey, right? And so just kind of tying, I want to tie that thread uh, together because that's such an opportunity that then ties us directly into Encanto because you see Encanto... For me, it's so special in multiple ways. First of all, it was a project that I actually worked on in all of my four years at Disney. So for folks who are listening who are not familiar with the animation process, um, animated feature films take on average somewhere between four to eight years to make. Um, it, it is a real process, an iterative process, very different than live action filmmaking because you are literally making from scratch everything in the world including where the sun is in a shot, right? You're like to that level. And so as you, as you go on that journey, it is a constant iteration. It's a constant conversation process. And so when I first, um, you know, encountered Encanto way back in, in 2017, so imagine from when we, we saw it, um, they had um, a, a Latina writer who's a playwright, uh, Sharice Castro-Smith, insanely talented, um, who is the writer on the project, um, and the two directors who are Byron Howard um, and uh, Jared Bush, who had done Zootopia, amongst other projects. Um, and they had already done a whole lot of pre-work. So just to back us up, they had gone with Lin-Manuel Miranda, who did all the music for Encanto, um, and with uh, the producer Yvette uh, Merino, who, by the way, is now the, I believe, only Latina to win an Academy Award in producing wow. ever for Encanto. So I just want to give her a shout. Um, and they took a trip to Colombia. They actually went to Colombia and spent time uh, with musicians, with folks who were farmers, with folks who held all different kinds of roles in society, so to speak, to have dialogue about what their culture means to me, how they think about it, what are they, what are they impacted by, what, you know, that's community-based development and storytelling. So just to kind of put a phrase on it, um, I think this is a critical part of any inclusive storytelling process, which is that you are engaged again in that two-way dialogue of not just the creative team, which has to have a sense of diversity, representation, and belonging within it, but also a dialogue 
with the folks whose stories you're engaging with at some level and really hear what are your concerns? What are you excited about? What gets you up in the morning, right? In a, in a sort of basic way. And those conversations started to directly influence everything you see in the film from the fact of like, what is an encanto? What does that look like? What does that feel like? What do those mountains look like around? Remember, everything is designed in animation. So everything is a choice, everything is a choice, right? Mm -hmm. What does that house look like? The idea, I think this is a really interesting narrative idea from Encanto and you might've subconsciously realized, which is this is a journey of a protagonist, of a hero, who by the way is a young Colombian woman, right? With glasses, by the way, first Disney protagonist with glasses, <laughs> I would like to say for everybody out there and they're green and awesome. And um, if you'll notice her journey as a hero is not going out from her family. Her journey is going into her family. Mm -hmm. That is culturally a very specific story choice. Um, that's a framework that's not in a, a traditional American framework of how you tell a story, right? We um, in America have very much often that sense of the hero narrative going out, right? Yes. Going out West, right? It's very manifest destiny in a way. It's very much that kind of piece, which is wrapped up in a whole lot of other stuff that we can unpack on another podcast. But <laughs> what I think is amazing about Encanto is it made the really distinctive decision to say, culturally at the very essence of the structure of this story, it is going to be about going into your family and into your culture to find yourself as opposed to away. Mm -hmm. And I think um, from that, everything else stems when you think about it from the film, right? The choices around um, everybody's different powers, so to speak, or you know what their strengths are. The idea that um, you know we all carry different roles in our family and the pressures of balancing your individual identity with that of your family and your culture. This is something very deep to anybody who has sat at the intersections of that, right? Mm -hmm. And then all the incredible intentional choices around skin color and Absolutely. tone, as mm -hmm. well as hair texture mm -hmm. and the combinations within one family which was incredibly important. I'm Latin and I can tell you for sure, most of our families look like the family in Encanto. Um, <laughs> and so for me, that felt very real. I'm Caribbean, so that feels very, very real. Um, but at the same token, we made a lot of decisions around, for example, that the um, popular one, sort of that the perfect child, mm -hmm. she has darker skin on mm -hmm. purpose. We didn't want it to be a lighter skin character that was the one that was considered perfect because that's something we've seen already in terms yeah. of that. Um, body types were used across the board. So you didn't just see a sort of thin, slim, very like where the wrist, you know what I mean, is like not realistic and your waist is basically, you know, smaller than the neck, you know, all that. <laughs> Move away from all of that. And then the, and the other piece of the puzzle was we ensured that you were able to see a sort of family dynamic that you probably hadn't seen before with the intersections of all those identities at play. And, um, and then the part that a lot of folks probably don't think about is at Disney, everything is a franchise. So when you take any piece of content, it doesn't exist just on that screen. It exists in different places and, and, and spaces for people to hold, right? So the products, right? The toys, the parks, right? The characters in the parks. Now you can see Mirabel, right? In the different Disney parks. The idea that you can meet these characters and that they are present to you in real life. I mean, talk about the fact of being seen, as you were saying, Stephanie, of the image on the wall. I mean, this is somebody walking around with you. And yes. then with the toys, we um, I have to give it to consumer products. This was the first probably Disney animated movie ever that had that diversity of skin tone and hair textures. And so the consumer products team was able to create an entirely new process that is now standard where every single character has Pantone skin color references mm -hmm. that are for every material that their image will be printed on. Because when you print a, a, a skin tone, right, on plastic mm -hmm. versus on cotton mm -hmm. versus on something else, it changes the hue, right? Oh, okay. Saturation. And so now the consumer product team has a process that has made that entirely consistent. So we won't see a lightening of skin tones because of product area, right? And mm -hmm. that that's now directed to every single vendor 
that Disney works with as a standard of excellence. And so um, for me, that's one of the more profound things that Encanto actually did from a company perspective that most people don't know about. And that also, um, that also applied obviously to hair texture and the other areas, because now for every film moving forward, that is what we're gonna be able to see, look and taste and feel with these characters outside of the screen. Um, and so when you think about inclusive storytelling, it's all the pieces we talked about dramaturgically, but then it's all those process pieces in an organization to ensure that you're getting that consistency of experience and that you're really connecting with the consumer and with the audience in a way that does actually feel like true representation as opposed to just window dressing. You're bringing me back to the first black Barbie doll that I, that I got mm -hmm. for Christmas and struck by the fact that it looked the same as the white Barbie doll yep. with black hair in like super dark skin. This this has changed since, yep. I mean, that's, yep. that, that's, that's some decades that's right. ago. Yep. I yep. won't tell you what decade that was, but I remember when the first black Barbie yep. came out. And so this is sort of, this sort of warms my heart for children um, everywhere is that we're being more thoughtful, not only about who they get to see up on, on the screen, but the toys that they get to play with and that the toys are, look like their family members and look like them. Melissa, I'm sure you wanted to jump in here. I, I did, I did want to, I want, I did want to jump in. Um, so you paint this wonderfully, like sophisticated, nuanced, complex, um, everyone's rowing in the same direction. And we often think about like when we're doing in inclusive anything that it should just be a light switch it should be easy can you talk to us about what might have been hard and like where everyone wasn't on the same page and and how did you get everyone moving forward so great question um i mean we had a lot as you might imagine we had a lot of um in-depth conversations about each and every character that's in that film so you know louisa who's strong like what should she actually physically look like? And, you know, we made a really distinctive choice, but there was a lot of disagreement about it, about, you know, her having the muscles, you know, and all of that, right? Which is not typically how you see a sort of female identifying character, right? So that was one place of conflict. I would say another place was um, when, uh, it was very interesting. The opening of the film used to be different. Um, it used to have, so we watched the film, um, there's that beautiful song, um, Dos Orguillitas, that the abuela sings later. Now it's later in the film uh, with Mirabel that tells the story about her and her late husband and basically how the Encanto sort of came to be. That used to be at the front of the film. Mm -hmm. um, our Colombian colleagues, actually, um, the Disney Columbia office, uh, we brought in early to this process, as you might and hopefully imagine. Um, and they watched that and they said, you know something? Um, with the history of our country, that's actually too hard for us to open the film on a place of conflict um, because it is so recent. And I'm, I'm getting emotional because it's that, you know, it is that profound. Um, and the remnants of that are still very present to them. And so they said, if you wouldn't mind, um, we think it's important, but we don't think it can open the movie. Um, and that note to me is one of the most profound moments of difference in vision where they were 100% correct. Um, and in making that change, I actually think it made the movie better, but also it's kind of speaks to this idea of perspective taking where it wasn't even, it was the it was the presence of actually being from that country and living in that experience in the day to day that was essential for that insight to appear. Um, and that was a place where we were rowing in one direction and it was like, okay, nope, we definitely, we need to be going in that direction. Um, I think the other, the other place with that film um, where, uh, you know, there, I would say, I don't know if it's necessarily a point of conflict, but I think is true of any time you're exploring any myriad of identities is that um, obviously we're all diverse communities unto ourselves. So there is no one representative, right, of what it means to be Colombian or what it means to be Black or what it means to be Latine more generally, et cetera, right? And so I think um, part of the stuff that gets hard is when there isn't necessarily one answer to the choice, the creative choice you can make. There's like five. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, which is the best? And that can be a very subjective answer. 
And that's where you start to get into what I think is like the good creative abrasion type conversations where you're really like acting it out. Yeah. Um, and my opinion on that, it, and, and we, that happened a lot, obviously, through the process of the movie, but um, and the, I think the Columbia example is a, is a good one of it, is that I think what's really most important is that there's a consistent POV, a consistent point of view in how you're making those decisions mm -hmm. um, so that you can always explain every single one of those decisions um, and that there's a relationship between them. I think um, where the danger comes in from a process perspective is when you kind of, you know, willy nilly all over the place, make these calls and you're not coming back to something central, some framework that you've all agreed on. And so I would say from a guidance perspective, like that's often how we've managed through conflict, especially in moments like that where there isn't necessarily one right answer. There are several wrong answers, but there's not necessarily one right one. I think that is really key it, uh, because in creative work, especially that's going to happen all the time, basically. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so Melissa, as you listen to some of the, um, process focused decisions that Julianne and the Uncanto team work through. Can you think of something analogous in, in your own work or research that you, you think can transcend outside of creative products to inclusive storytelling practices in internal organizational life processes? Do you see overlap there? I, I, I do I do see overlap. Um, I have lots of examples about where it where it didn't flow that way, and then and somewhere where it did. Some um, in the process of creating creative content, actually at, at Airbnb, and the key things that resonate are getting those perspectives and voices in early, because mm -hmm. often there was a tension that gets set up when the creative team has gone in one direction, and then um, there was a group that uh, was created to bring. Uh, divergent perspectives to the creative lens, but they often were brought in when the project was almost finished. And then when they shared their concerns or the opportunities, it felt like it was a critique and that they didn't respect the work. Mm -hmm. um, and so that early piece, because you don't know what that divergent perspective is going to be if you haven't had that lived experience. And so you just have to make sure that you have representation in the conversation from an early piece. So, so that's a critical, critical piece. The other thing is that there has to be this psychological safety, this respect, mm -hmm. um, in order to get to what you call the like healthy, abrasive, you know, creative energy, people have to feel like it's worthwhile for them to speak up and to say something and to fight for something. So that's the second piece of it. And then the third is that it seemed like there was a North Star that there had been agreement on. There was a, a quality um, uh, of perspective, there was a point of view, there was a commitment to telling an authentic multifaceted um, mm -hmm. story. And so you could reference that. And it's the same thing in, in organizations. If you, if you haven't agreed upon where you're going, then it invites people to participate, to, to argue with one another. And it's not about personalities or individuals fighting with one another or not being respected. It's about getting to a better product or service, um, whatever it is. And so like, Julianne, you just shared things that like map, you know, perfectly onto like three things that I would have highlighted. Absolutely. So Julianne, I'm gonna give you the chance to give uh, any final thoughts to our listener with respect to if they were to want to take inclusive storytelling seriously in their own work, you know, we've, we've covered the range of work that people can be doing in an organization during this podcast, but one or two tips or strategies that you would like to offer as well. Sure, absolutely. Um, and I have to say, I'm teach, I mean, your insights resonated really deeply with me, particularly the North Star piece, because when you think about storytelling, if there isn't agreement on where you want to take the story and like philosophically, what are the underpinnings of it? Um, basically, you will make no story <laughs> because it will become an exercise in almost Frankensteining different pieces and opinions together, as opposed to doing it with one voice. And the only way you get there, to your point, is bringing in uh, a symphony of voices early to get that whole sound. I think music is often a really nice yes. metaphor. <laughs> um, and then, because then otherwise the violins will be playing one way and the 
oboes the other um i just wanted to riff on that for a second anyway um but i but i think it's so true and i think you know in giving the tips uh, you know and, and when i worked with students on this more deeply with my producing partner you know a few of the things we thought about is um, to ask some fundamental incisive questions as you endeavor into this. Um, I think good questions are often the place to start. So one is, why do you want to tell this story? Mm-hmm. Why you? Mm-hmm. Why you? If you don't have a good answer to that question, you need to probably reevaluate why it's you sitting in the driver's seat of that particular story. Mm-hmm. Secondly, um, what is this story doing in terms of the identities, the um, uh, the communities, the geographies, the cultures that are intersecting in it. Um, and do you think there might be some stereotype playing in? Do you think you might be basing on some previous years? If, if you don't have an answer to that, you need to do some research, which means you need to start digging in further to what am I exploring in here? What has already been explored and really understand the context of where you're developing that story. The third question to ask is, who needs to be on this journey with me? Mm -hmm. Um, Creative work, but I think life also is a team sport. Mm -hmm. Um, And when you are doing any kind of storytelling, it's never just you. And it's never just in a vacuum because it's going to impact possibly on the order of billions of people. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the profound question to ask is, who are the teammates that need to be a part of this journey. Um, and if it's not me who's taking the lead, then who's that person, who's that teammate who takes the lead and I support, right? And I think um, those are the places to start. And then from there, it becomes about mapping your process to say at each stage, right? Because storytelling is a process. There's there are There's a journey, right? You're gonna map an outline perhaps, right? You're gonna write some sort of copy, script, you know, something that's guiding you, right? You're going to come up with the schedule and who else you need to hire and bring on board into this team. And if you're sitting on a particular team, who else you're going to bring along? And then it's about getting it done and making it. And then it's about taking it to the world. So at each of those stages, how are you interrogating, asking those same incisive questions at each and every single one of those stages? And to me, that's an inclusive storytelling map or process. Um, and it's something I have a visual for, but that sort of gives you a taste of it as you kind of venture into, into this work. That's wonderful. I always think about you know, the research that I do or the advice that I give to people in organizations is, and you can't just think about this as what's the quickest route to the end. Because if you think about this as a quickest route to the end, you're going to engage likely in something that's more like exclusive storytelling versus inclusive. So understanding that inclusive storytelling takes a while for good reason. But at the end of the day, what we're trying to create are a set of experiences, products, uh, things that we can consume. Um, that really does speak to the wide range of people who frequent you know, our organizations and sort of enjoy what it is that we have to offer. So with that, I wanna thank you, Julianne and Melissa so much for being part of this episode today. Really fascinating work you both have done and are continuing to do. Um, And we look forward to hearing more about your future collaborations together. (laughs) Uh, Thank you for sharing all of your insights and expertise with us. Uh, So that's all for today. Thank you for joining us and listening to this episode of the Knowledge at Wharton Leading Diversity at Work podcast series. Goodbye for now. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.